So we're going to study this afternoon Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It's often called the Nativity, the birth of the Lord. So before we do that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures, and we pray, Father, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the Scriptures for that which they truly are, the very words of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Amen. So, as we're looking at this passage, I think the first and most interesting thing is that we're looking at two kings. There are two different kings here, or two different emperors, or two different rulers. Caesar Augustus and a baby. Caesar Augustus ruling from the most wealthy and powerful city in the world at that time, most likely living in luxury, in great comfort, in a palace, and Jesus, God the Son, taken upon himself flesh, God incarnate, ruler of all creation. Through him all things were made, we read earlier in the Gospel of John. Without him was not anything made that was made. And he's born into the poorest of circumstances. He's born technically, illegitimately. I mean, the point is even made in the text that he's the firstborn son of Mary, but not that he's the firstborn son of Joseph. Was he born in a stable or a barn? Possibly. He was probably born at least in something like servants' quarters where many of the animals were housed overnight along with the poorest of the people. And he was laid in a manger. He was laid in, we'd call it a trough, the feed trough. A great king living in luxury, a great king entering into what theologians call his humiliation. His humiliation. Theologians call the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ his humiliation. Why would they say that? Well, he's God, the eternally begotten Son of God. It was his own creation that he entered into, and he entered into his own creation in the most not glorious of ways. Illegitimate birth, poor family, from Nazareth, which is a nowhere town, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? To Bethlehem, which wasn't even his father's uh, regular home, though it was where his family traced from. There he was born. God, the Son of God, the ruler of all creation, in whose image we have been made. 
just a baby born in the poorest of circumstances. And so it's called his humiliation. And all his life, if you think of it in those terms, was a life of humiliation. His humanity was a humiliation. There was, there was nothing about his humanity. It wasn't stamped on his forehead that he was God, the eternally begotten Son of God in the flesh. He looked like just, when he was little, another little boy. When he got a bit older, he looked like just another one of the teenagers. There was nothing about him. He didn't look like a superhero. He didn't look the way we might expect a saviour to look. And, of course, he was proclaimed guilty or pronounced guilty for something that he didn't do, and he was put to death in the most shameful way possible. So we could almost say the humiliation begins here. Interestingly, when you look at that idea of circumstance, you've got Caesar Augustus, Emperor of Rome. You've got Jesus, God, the eternally begotten Son of God, being born as a baby. Now, Caesar Augustus, I'm sure, did not consider himself to be a servant of the God of the Jews. He would have known who the Jews were. They'd spread throughout the Roman Empire by this stage. He would have known that they worshipped a particular God whom they considered to be the only true God. And he would not have thought that he was the servant of that God. But we know from hundreds of years before, and we read in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Caesar Augustus did not think that he was the servant of God. He did not consider himself to be the servant of this baby about whom he knew nothing. Yet God used him to arrange the circumstances for the birth of that baby, which God had said would be done in this way, in this certain place, the city of Bethlehem. It wasn't in his heart. He was doing whatever he wanted. Caesar Augustus, as far as he was concerned, was no man's servant. And in all honesty, probably he probably thought that he was no God's servant. As the emperor of Rome, he took titles unto himself that no Jew would ever have been willing to speak because they would have felt that those titles were blasphemous. He literally, one of his titles was divine saviour. And he was considered to be a son of the gods. He felt that he was doing whatsoever he pleased. He felt that he was ruling Rome and the Roman Empire. He felt that it was fair enough for him to take a census of all the world for the purposes of taxation, doing whatsoever he wanted. But he was serving this baby. He was arranging circumstances for the arrival of this baby. Even Jesus in the flesh, a baby, genuine baby, was not born speaking Hebrew and Greek, and he was not born reading the scriptures. He was born a baby. He had to be cared for by his mother. He had to be breastfed like a baby, etc., etc. All of those normal human things had to happen to Jesus, had to be done for Jesus, like any other baby that we would bring into the world. Caesar Augustus served that baby. 
Caesar Augustus was caused to do things to arrange for the arrival of that baby. When he said that men throughout the empire must be registered in the town or the area from which their family came, he was arranging for Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem. The servant, the servant of God. The emperor of Rome is the servant of God. If you want to turn your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah there speaks of another, another king, another ruler, another nation, another empire, which was to be for a while most likely the most powerful military nation in the world. Let's start reading at verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Now, Assyria was a military nation, a rapacious, cruel nation, a nation that became wealthy through invasion and plunder. Verse 6, against a godless nation, I send him. This is Assyria. I send him against a godless nation. Isaiah here was speaking of his own people, Judah. They were the godless nation to be punished. And Assyria was to be the rod that was to punish the godless nation of Judah. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he, this is Assyria, he does not so intend and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? We'll read a little further. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes, and will leave it. The king of Assyria, ruler of a powerful military nation, an expanding empire. You know, he, he had armies, he sent the armies out, the armies sent the treasure back. He got richer and richer, more powerful, more wealthy, and it would seem more cruel. He thought he was doing whatsoever he pleased. I do whatever I want. I make decisions according to my own will. I'm just a free agent in this world. And what does God say? Verse 7 of Isaiah 10. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is, it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Assyria is my servant, says God. Assyria is accomplishing my will, says God. The king of Assyria is doing exactly what I want him to do, when I want him to do it, where I want him to do it. He doesn't think so. He thinks he's doing whatsoever he pleases. Once again, he's just a servant of the living God, as is everyone in the world, believer and unbeliever alike. In the end, they're servants of the living God. We are servants of God knowingly purposefully, according to the will of God, by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Unbelievers are also servants of God. 
and all are being used according to their nature. The devil himself is a servant of God. If you want to think of it this way, at this moment in Isaiah chapter 10, the king of Assyria is the public face of the devil. He is the public servant of the evil one, doing whatsoever the evil one desires him to do. And even so, the devil and the king of Assyria are doing exactly that which God had given them to do. My people have sinned against me. My people have taken their covenant relationship with me lightly. Let them be punished. You go and do the punishing. People being used according to their nature. Whether they be good, whether they be evil, God knows them. God knows their powers. God knows their abilities. God knows their hearts. Turning back into Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, long before those days, back in time eternity, a decree went out from the very throne room of God that that would be done, that it would be so. God decreed, therefore Caesar Augustus decreed. This was, reading on, at verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, you know, I can assure you, as I read and as I prepared, I can tell you that this, um, this phrase, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria to, to the scholars and to the commentators, this is like grist for the mill. You know, this is, this is the kind of thing that they love to get onto and argue about and they can have all their scholarly debates. When was this? Was Quirinius really the governor? Blah, 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 blah. I was thinking about it and thinking, you know, in 500 years' time, if someone found an email that I might have sent to Joel, for example, and the email said, well, wasn't it different the way we handled the first lockdown compared to the second lockdown? The scholarly debate awakens. What's a lockdown? Why did they have a lockdown? What do they mean, lockdown? What year was that? Have we found any other record of a lockdown? Do we know when the lockdown occurred? Was there even a lockdown? Was he making it up? Etc. Etc. That's the situation here. All right. Caesar decreed that a census would be taken. As far as I'm concerned, what Luke has written is correct. This was the first registration. Obviously, then there were others. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Notice Luke attaches this to history, to real time. So we've gone from eternity past, before even the creation of the earth, God decrees that the son would take upon himself flesh and be born at a particular place and at a particular time. Because God has decreed it, we come to a particular point in time. Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the most powerful empire in the world at that moment, decrees that everyone must return to the place of their birth. And so Joseph takes Mary, his betrothed, to Bethlehem and to the scriptures, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, there will come from you the ruler whose coming forth is from old, from ancient all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, And Joseph all went up, also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Something like a 70 to 80 mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 70 to 80 miles, putting that in kilometres, 
you're looking at 100 net. Not an easy trip for a heavily pregnant woman. And so we actually need to wonder why. I would, I would guess it was because Joseph felt that it was more important that he protected this woman than that he left her at the perhaps not so gentle mercy of relatives and town folks where that town... She was betrothed. All right. To be betrothed in Jewish society was to be married in every way except you are not living together and you have not committed the marriage. The, the, the contract of betrothal carried the same legal weight as a marriage contract. And to break off a betrothal required a divorce, a genuine divorce recognised by the elders of your town, by your family. And Mary was pregnant. Now, Joseph himself, if we just turn quickly to Matthew chapter 1. Joseph himself was um, rather challenged by the fact that his betrothed had become pregnant. Let's read from Matthew chapter 1 at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You see that he had to divorce her to break off the betrothal, to break off the engagement. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We'll stop there. Joseph was no fool. A girl was pregnant. He reached a certain conclusion. We'd all reach it. The girl's pregnant. How does a girl get pregnant? But an angel from God himself appeared to Joseph and assured him, that which is conceived is conceived from the Holy Spirit. That which is conceived is miraculous. It's not unholy. It's amazingly holy. This is not the product product of sin and unrighteousness. This is the uh, product of God's mighty working. This is actually, Joseph, something amazing. Now, Joseph was a man of faith. I mean, often I think about Joseph. Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, the, the stepfather, we, we might say, of Jesus. If ever you're sort of reading through Matthew and Luke, the things you notice about Joseph, everything that he was told to do, he does. He's obedient. He controls his mouth and he does what he's told. Not a bad way for a man to live in terms of in the sight of God. He keeps his mouth under control and he does as God commands. But just think of this. The girl is pregnant and it took the appearance of a holy angel to assure him that this girl has not sinned, that this pregnancy is not wicked. So now you're living in a town where everybody knows everybody. You know, Lisa and I, we've... You know, you guys know our, our house has come close to sale now. It's very close to being sold. And we just don't seem to be able to see a person down the street at the moment whom we know that doesn't say to us, we hear you've sold your house. It happened just this afternoon. A, a, a lady that we only know casually, 
and doesn't live in our town, in our little village. We hear you've sold your house. How did you know? Oh, I know the guy who lives across the street from you. <laughs> How did he know? <laughs> okay, you've got this little town called Nazareth. It's nothing more than a rural village. And there you've got a girl who is betrothed and pregnant. The betrothed husband needed a vision from the Lord to assure him not to respond to this in the way that the world would expect you to respond. You would be expected to divorce this girl and accuse her of unfaithfulness. He needed a vision from an angel. He needed the Lord himself to intervene to convince him of that which ought to be done. And he's a faithful man. Okay, what about the town round about them? What about the people round about? You know, I... It's a horrible movie and I don't honestly recommend it to Christians, but years ago when I was not a Christian, I watched The Life of Brian. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. It's a Monty Python movie. It's very blasphemous. It's it's very sarcastic. It's very young. It's very hateful towards the Christian faith. And there's one particular scene there where they just mock the birth of this man called Brian. They just mock it. And it's very obvious now to me as a Christian, I didn't honestly pick it up as a non-Christian, but it's very obvious now to me as a Christian that what they're actually mocking is the, is the virgin conception of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And basically the whole scene is basically saying, how is it possible that a virgin could become pregnant? She was obviously no virgin. That's what they're saying. They're speaking of a man called Brian, but now as a Christian I see what they were doing. They were mocking the Christian faith. And so I'm sure Joseph was a man who was considered to be a decent man and he was probably at this point in time considered to be a fool. Imagine, you're betrothed. Mary's pregnant. Joseph, how is it that Mary's pregnant? Oh, well, it's of the Holy Spirit. God has assured me. I saw an angel. (laughs) How are people going to respond? See the angel. They didn't receive the word from the Lord. So I would suggest that the reason Joseph took Mary on this long journey is that he felt he just simply could not leave her alone. He had been charged by God to accept that this child is the saviour and to do his part as a believer in God's providence, in God's plan to work salvation. The child, in the providence of God, was now his responsibility and I think he probably felt that he simply could not leave her alone. He had to keep her with him. He had to be protective. He had to be shepherding of his little family, of this girl who was most likely a teen, 14, 15 years old. That's the age of betrothal around about in that society at that time. 14, 15-year-old pregnant girl saying that she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, probably a somewhat older man, saying, yes, an angel told me this is true. And the people round about saying, you're an idiot and she's a sinner. He takes his little family to Bethlehem. A long journey for a heavily pregnant woman, but that's where he takes her. Notice that Luke tells us back in Luke chapter 2 and in verse 4, because he was of the house and lineage of David. It's important that we understand that Jesus is the son of David. Even even in terms of 
adoption. The whole Jewish concept of adoption is that the adopted one is truly, completely and totally a member of your family with all the rights thereof. Joseph was of the city of David. Joseph was of the line of David. Joseph's lineage traced back through David. The one to be born is the son of David. To be born in the city of David. To be born in Bethlehem as was foretold in the scriptures. Reading on at verse 5 of Luke chapter 2. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Notice at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Think about that. Her firstborn son. That is not the way you would speak of a baby in Jewish society, in, in, in the history of the Jews. It would be the father's firstborn son in normal conversation. That's what you would say, the firstborn son of Joseph. But here, in this instance, it says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That should actually get us to think now. What was the first promise of salvation? What's the first gospel promise? When, where, where was it made? Where was the first specific promise of salvation made? And how was it spoken of? What was spoken of? Turn back to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. So the sin has happened and God has come into the garden and is judging. We pick it up at Genesis chapter 3 verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And I think your Bibles might say your seed and her seed. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Her seed, a woman's seed. The Saviour promised was to be the seed of the woman, the offspring of a woman. Turn back to the Gospel of Luke chapter. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Now I'm just going to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 4. Starting at verse 1 of Galatians chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. 
looking at Luke chapter 2. Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. He's not Joseph's son. He's not the seed of any man. Oh, he's truly the seed of the woman. He's truly a man. His humanity is true humanity. He was born of a woman like any other man is born. His skin was skin. His blood type, we have no idea what it was, but it was blood like yours and mine. Cut the skin, the blood runs out. You're the woman. Born of the woman. God sent forth his son. Born of woman. Born under the law. Joseph, we could say, adopted him as his own firstborn son. We could say that Joseph became his stepfather. That's the language that we would use. But this boy was never the child sent forth, the seed of the woman, born of a woman, born under the law. We'll talk a little more about that shortly, but let's get to the end of our reading. And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Swaddling cloths, some long, coarse strips of material wrapped around the baby, basically to keep the baby straight and still, to keep him straight and still. It was, it was felt to be very important in that day and in that age to wrap a baby shortly after birth so that the baby would, would grow straight, strong limbs. Now, I don't know if they had any reason for believing this. I don't know if there was any science behind this, but it was apparently very common. If, if we turn to the prophet Ezekiel and chapter 16, let's just read from verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 16. Again, the word of the Lord come, came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you, do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard. And on the, on the day that you were born, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. So when Ezekiel prophesied something like 500 years before the birth of Jesus, it was obviously common practice in that society, in that nation, to wrap a baby in swaddling cloths. It was felt to be important. As I said, they believed that the baby's bones would grow strong, straight and true. So Mary cares for this baby as any Jewish mother would care for the baby. Mary cares for him as a mother. He was laid in a manger, as we've said, most likely something like a feed trough. That's the, that's the phrase we would use. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, do I feel that they were rejected from the inn for any particular purpose? The answer probably is no. The town would have just been as busy as. There was a census going on. There would have been government officials in all sorts of various places. There were people returning to their home region. You know, if, if a family of six young men and those young men grow up and most of them move off to other places and take up their work and whatever, wherever they go, but they're all told to come back to Bethlehem, well, maybe they all bring more than one person back. Wives, children, 
the town was just packed. You know, there's an engineering project going on our, around our district at the moment and Cooma's packed. All the shops, you know, today there were queues out the door of most of the places we saw. There was no place for them in the inn. <laughs> it's, it, it just strikes me. We can make the mistake of thinking that if something is according to the will of God, it must always run without hitch. It must always run smoothly. One thing leads to another. One thing must lead to another. All the doors must be open. And considering the things that Lisa and I have going on in our lives at the moment, I'm warning us, warning us ourselves that everything must appear to be pre-organised, that everything must appear to be arranged the way we would arrange it. I mean, if we were arranging the birth of a special baby, we'd book time at the hospital. If we were arranging the birth of a special baby, we'd make sure that she was at that hospital at the right time, in the best, in the, in the best care, etc., etc. Sometimes we assume wrongly when we think that way. God's plan and God's providence does not always look to us the way we think it should look. <coughs> Pardon me. The, the problems that we have and the troubles that we face in our life, they're no indication that God's hand is not upon us. Absolutely no indication that things are not happening according to the will of God. We think, as I said, that everything should run smoothly that everything should run according to our plans, that everything should happen the way we think it should happen. We think that this is evidence of the providence of God, but everything comes under the providence of God. And there was no more important thing that has ever happened in history, except perhaps for the crucifixion of the same person, than the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And this, says Jesus, was promised from Genesis through to Malachi is the way we would say it, from the beginning to the end of what were at that moment the scriptures. This was promised from before time began. This was promised. You know, God wasn't making up a new thing when he spoke in the garden and said that the seed of the woman would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. That had been his plan from before time began. We imagine that if everything's happening according to God's will, nothing's going wrong. Sometimes things are going wrong and that is also God's will, at least wrong in our eyes, wrong in the way we think things should go, never wrong in God's plan, never. The troubles, the hassles, the issues that we face, the struggles, these are all in and under the providence of God. There was no more promised birth than the promise of of the birth of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And this is the way it happened. And you might think that everything went wrong. He had to get this poor pregnant girl. He dragged us 70 miles through the wilderness to this little town, which was jam-packed because there was a census. They couldn't stay in the decent place. They couldn't stay in a place where there would be care. They were lonely. They were in very poor quarters, either something like a stable or something like the quarters of the poorest of the poor servants who shared their quarters with animals that were to be housed overnight. 
Surely that can't be right. Answer, surely it is. Surely it is. Surely this is according to the foreordained plan of our God. The amazing thing is that we're so blessed that we actually face so, face so few struggles and issues in our life. We're so blessed that we actually face so few things, to hurt, so few uh, hurdles and barriers to overcome. God is gracious and merciful. God treats us better than we deserve. And even when things happen that are tough, it's still according to the plan and the providence of God. You know, Jesus was conceived in the power of the Holy Spirit, in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where there was no life, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, gave life. What would we be if God had not given life to us? You know, our hearts, we were alive in the biological sense, but we were dying. And in the spiritual sense, we were dead. The wages of sin are death. But God gave us life. By the power of his Holy Spirit, we've been born again. The seed, which is the word of God, abides in us. There are all sorts of phrases describing this thing in the New Testament. We were circumcised in the heart. We were made living. We've been blessed with life. This babe that was conceived in the, in the womb of the virgin has now been conceived by the power of God's Holy Spirit in the heart of humanity, in the heart of people like you and I. And he wasn't born into perfect and wonderful circumstances. He was born into a challenging and troubled life. It was called, remember, his humiliation. So I think what we should get from this is that we ourselves, as the children of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the children of the living God, as the younger Brethren of Jesus, our older brother in whose image we are being remade. We should not expect that our life runs just so. Everything happens just perfectly. That it's always just easy. You know, you know and, and you know the circumstances of our lives. And we're at this moment where for Lisa and I, it seems that God is guiding our footsteps very, very clearly. And things are running in a way that we rarely have seen in our lives. But that doesn't mean that when times were troubled, when we had difficult times, that doesn't mean that God wasn't running our lives in the difficult times just as much as he's running our lives in what we don't think of the difficult times, in what we consider to be the blessed times. God's running our lives the whole way. We learn things in the difficult times that we would not pick up or learn in the times of blessing. We, we, we're being remade in the image of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, always and constantly. God is working on us, making us the way he wants us to be. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the Gospel of Luke, the Saviour is born. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you, Father, that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We pray, Father, that we would live our lives in obedience to your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
from this day forth and evermore. 